Good morning to you again. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be finishing chapter 12 this morning, and we're also going to cover the first part of chapter 13. So Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 49, running until verse 9 in chapter 13. That's a longer section, but there's some continuity across these paragraphs that I hope will be encouraging to us uh, today in our 50th Luke sermon. I don't know why I know that, but it's it's because I counted them. That's why I know. Um, 50th Luke sermon. Luke chapter 12, verse 49, running until verse 9 of chapter 13. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for Your help today. We have already heard, Father, as we read in Galatians chapter 5, that You call us to walk according to the Spirit, and Your Spirit works through Your Word. And so we pray now that You would do a spiritual work in us, God. That You would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe what is true in the Scriptures. Lord, help us to remember that Your Word and Your Spirit work together to bear fruit in our lives. We pray, Father, for an openness today to hear Your Word. I pray, Lord, that this exposition of Your Word would be 
accurate and faithful and true, I pray that you would keep me from error. We pray, God, that we would not take it for granted that we have the Scriptures and that we have the ability to hear them and that we would receive them with gladness, remembering that the Word is implanted in us and therefore able to save our souls. Help us today, God. Help us today on this every day Sunday in January. Help us to hear Your Word anew. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that you've all heard the phrase before, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. I heard that phrase a lot from my mom when I was a kid because I was a chronic procrastinator. And while it irritated me to no end to have my mom say that, I can still hear her voice, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. That's not really what she sounds like, but that's what it sounds like in my head. While it irritated me to no end to have my mom say that to me, there's no denying the wisdom in moms using that phrase. Procrastination tends to go badly, doesn't it? And wisdom would say it's better to do your work today. There's a lot of wisdom in that. So much so that if I had listened to my mom back in the day, my grades in math would have been better. So if you're a kid in here this morning and you're wondering what does this sermon have to do with me, here's an application for you. Your mom is nearly always right. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Friends, there's a sense in which that well-known motherly advice is an accurate summary of this passage here in Luke's Gospel. In these verses, Jesus calls His listeners to recognize the urgency of today. Of course, Jesus is not talking about math homework in Luke chapter 12. He's talking about responding to God. He's reminding us that no one is promised tomorrow. Do you believe that? No one is promised tomorrow. And therefore, today always comes with urgency to respond to God. Don't wait, Jesus is saying. Don't put off till tomorrow what wisdom would say you ought to do today. And that urgency, brothers and sisters, is made all the more pressing in light of Jesus' mission. Why has Jesus come? There's a lot of ways that you could answer that, but perhaps the clearest way to answer it is this. Jesus has come to carry out the will of God. What the Father determined in eternity past, the Son, through the power of the Spirit, has now come to fulfill. Jesus' mission is to carry out the will of God. And that includes the announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled, Jesus preached in His very first sermon, Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. That's where the urgency comes in. Since the kingdom of God is arriving in Jesus Christ, wisdom would say, don't put off till tomorrow what the gospel demands of you today. Don't assume there will be time later on to do business with God. Repent and believe today. For the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ. It's the urgency of today. So what we need to do this morning is spend some time reflecting on just that urgency. The urgency of Jesus' mission and His message. Jesus' aim is for people to respond. And so that's what we need to do. We need to slow down and we need to pray that God would allow us to 
have the eyes to see the wisdom of Christ here in this passage and then respond as we ought. Specifically, there are three truths that Jesus puts before us in this text that demand our response. Each of the truths builds on one another so that by the end there's really just one pressing application that faces us. So with that in mind, let's think more deeply about each of these truths and the urgency of today. The first truth comes in verses 49 to 53 where we see how the gospel of Christ divides humanity. The gospel of Christ divides Yes, I use that word, divides humanity. Jesus begins with an alarming description of his mission. Notice again Jesus' words, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. In Scripture, fire is often a picture of judgment. That judgment might be for the purpose of refining or purifying something, but in this context, it's clear that Jesus means judgment in the divine sense. This fire, according to Jesus, is an expression of God's judgment on humanity. And that judgment comes in and through Jesus Christ. His coming, His mission, at least in part, reveals who belongs to God and who does not. But Jesus' point is perhaps even more alarming in verse 51, where the idea of division is very plainly stated. Look again, verse 51. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Clearly, that's not language about simply purifying or refining things. That's the language of divine judgment. Instead of peace, there will be division. Jesus comes to cast fire. Now, what does Jesus mean here? We all know the well-known verse. It's maybe the most famous verse in all of Luke's Gospel from Luke chapter 2 where the angels announce glory to God on highest and on earth, peace with those with whom God is well-pleased. But here in chapter 12, Jesus says His mission is not to bring peace, but to bring division. He comes to cast fire on the earth. So what does Jesus mean? Well, I would say the path to an answer begins in verse 50. Jesus announces His mission, verse 49, and then in verse 50, Jesus speaks of what this mission will require of Him. Notice what the Lord says. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. To be baptized in the Christian ordinance is to be immersed in water, but Jesus is not talking about the ordinance of baptism. In verse 50, Jesus is again talking about judgment. Just as fire in the Bible often pictures judgment, so too does water. Think of the flood in Genesis chapter 6. What did those waters bring? They brought the judgment of God. In fact, you could say that the earth endured a baptism of God's judgment at the flood. And that's the connection here in Luke 12. Jesus' baptism is a reference to His endurance of judgment. His baptism will occur at the cross, in other words, where Jesus, the Son of God, will endure the judgment of God in the place of sinners like us. This, too, is central to Christ's mission. Jesus both brings judgment and bears judgment. 
He enforces judgment and He endures judgment. The terrible beauty of the Gospel is that Christ is the judge of all things who took judgment upon Himself in order to save people from the very wrath of God that He will distribute on the last day. Remember, friends, here in Luke, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. His face is set like flint for Jerusalem. And there's no place for that road to end other than the cross. That's what Jesus is saying. There's no future for the plan of God unless Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. There's no future for the people of God unless Jesus is baptized under the judgment of God Himself at the cross. His baptism is a reference to His endurance of judgment. In fact, if you notice the end of verse 50, Jesus says that His distress is great until this baptism is accomplished. Friends, that's a little preview of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will, sh- will sweat great drops of blood as the cross draws near. But notice, even in His distress, Jesus says His baptism will be accomplished. That's a word of purpose. That's a word of fulfillment. It's not an expression of what might happen, but what will happen according to the plan of God. Jesus' baptism means that He must go to the cross and endure judgment. And that endurance of judgment explains what Jesus means when He says He did not come to bring peace, but division. Or to say it another way, Jesus' baptism in verse 50 explains the reason or the cause for the division in verse 51. The Gospel of Christ is the great dividing line of humanity. There are only two categories of people. There are those who trust in Christ and believe that His baptism of judgment occurred in their place. And there are those who do not trust in Christ, but reject Him as their Savior and Lord. The Gospel is the great dividing line of humanity. For those who trust in Christ, there is peace. Peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But for those who do not trust in Christ, there is no peace. There's only division. Notice Jesus' words, verses 52 and 53. Even within families, as close as you can get, even within families, how one responds to Christ may well bring separation. Fathers divided from sons and daughters divided from mothers. Now that's sobering to think about. But remember Jesus' words in John's Gospels. If the world hated me, Jesus says, no, they will also hate you, and it may happen in your own home. Now that doesn't mean, listen to me, that doesn't mean Christians are free to stir up strife and division on their own. The same Jesus who predicted division also commands us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. This same Jesus commanded us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So woe to the Christian who believes that boldness means creating strife, whether in the world or in the church. Woe to that person. Verse 51 does not give us permission to stir stuff up. Far from it. But, verse 51 does tell us brothers and sisters, what we ought to expect in this world. By all means, 
we strive for winsome witness to others. By all means, we love our neighbors as ourselves. By all means, we demonstrate the meekness, kindness, and compassion of Christ. But make no mistake, there is no level of Christian kindness that will eliminate the world's hostility to the Gospel. There is no level of explanation. There is no sophistication of nuance that will make the world view our convictions as anything other than loathsome and intolerable. You cannot be nice enough to make the world like the cross. At the end of the day, the cross offends those who do not belong to God. Our job is not to make the cross palatable, but clear. Or to use Jesus' words, when I say the cross offends those who do not belong to God, I'm just paraphrasing what Jesus says when He proclaims that He came to cast fire on the earth. It's the same thing. The gospel is the great dividing line of humanity. So let's try to sum this first point up because it's heavy. The gospel is the good news of peace on earth. But that peace is not universal with no qualifications. There's peace, but only for those who respond to Christ by grace through faith. For those who reject the gospel, it becomes a source of division and judgment. And therefore, we ought to pray that as a church, we will remain steadfast, particularly when the gospel does the very thing that Jesus said it will do. Friends, if you look at the history of the church, so many detours and crashes of the church's mission have come when we tried to make the gospel something other than what it is. The great sieve that separates God's people from the world. And so we ought to pray that the Lord make us steadfast to make the gospel clear and to leave the results with God. That's the first truth that speaks about the urgency of today. The gospel of Christ divides humanity. The second truth comes in verses 54 to 59. The nearness of the kingdom demands discernment. The nearness of the kingdom demands discernment. Without much transition, Jesus shifts to a new topic. He's preparing to rebuke the crowd, but before He rebukes them, He sets up an analogy with, of all things, predicting the weather. Look at verses 54 and 55. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You can follow Jesus' point. The people in His day had learned how to interpret the signs that a change in the weather was coming. A cloud rising over the Mediterranean meant it's probably going to rain. A wind blowing out of the south meant it's going to get hot. Those are basic observations. And Jesus' point is that the people in the crowd knew how to read those observations. They knew how to read the signs. What's more, the people in Jesus' day, didn't argue with the weather patterns. They didn't ignore the rising cloud or the south wind. Instead, they got ready. They took action based on the signs that some change was near. Then comes the rebuke. Verse 56. Jesus indicts the crowd for failing to respond to something much more significant than a change in the weather. Notice verse 56. You hypocrites! 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Look, anytime Jesus calls someone a hypocrite, we should pay attention. It's a stinging rebuke that indicates how deeply off-target someone is from the truth, even though they act like they know it. And that's the sense here. The crowd can interpret a change in the weather, but they cannot, or they will not, interpret a change in the spiritual season. All around them, there are signs that something significant is happening, and yet they miss the importance of the present time. Of course, that raises the question, what is the present time that the crowd misses? What's happening that they ought to recognize? Well, in short, friends, the present time is the arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. What they ought to recognize is that God's kingdom has come. What is happening is that God's redemptive rule has broken into this age with Jesus. And right now, every promise of salvation is being fulfilled, not in theory, but in flesh and blood right in front of their face. They can see it with their own eyes. The signs are all around them, and yet they cannot, or they will not, see them. And let's be clear. The signs of the kingdom are abundantly evident in Jesus' ministry. Every miracle in the Gospels is, in effect, a proof of the kingdom's presence. That's what all the miracles mean. That the kingdom of God has come in some various level of emphasis. Every time Jesus drives out an unclean spirit, it's the sign that God's redemptive rule has come to crush the forces of Satan. Every time Jesus heals the sick, It's a sign that brokenness is being overcome. Every time Jesus uh, restores or calms the natural world, it's a sign that creation belongs to Him and the curse will not triumph. The signs are abundantly clear. The kingdom of God is at hand and you don't have to look hard. It's right there. And yet the crowd will not believe Him. They will not believe Him. The Jewish religious leaders will not see it. Instead, they do the opposite. They oppose Jesus. They attribute His miracles to the power of Satan. They accuse Him of breaking the law. At every step, Jesus demonstrates the nearness of the kingdom of God. And at every step, the Israel of Jesus' day says, no, we won't believe it. We refuse to believe it. We won't see it. How should they respond? If the crowd were to suddenly have eyes to see, what should they do as they see the nearness of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ? How should they respond? Well, look at the parable that Jesus tells in verses 57 to 59. The parable is the answer. The parable pictures the response that the crowd ought to give. Listen again to the parable, verses 57 to 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. At first, this seems like a very simple parable about settling disputes before they get to the crisis point. But there's more to this parable than everyday wisdom. Think about the first point of the passage, the first point of the sermon that we just 
talked about, where Jesus is presented as the judge of all the earth. In those opening verses, it was very clear that the judgment of God is coming. I'll argue that those opening verses ought to shape how we interpret the parable. Jesus is not simply talking about everyday wisdom, though that's certainly true. His point is about reconciling with God before it's too late. You see, the nearness of the kingdom should cause the crowd to recognize that the final day is getting closer. And therefore, wisdom would say, reconcile with God now before you face His throne of judgment, receive condemnation, and are placed in eternal punishment and you'll never get out. Hear the good news that Christ proclaims and respond to Him as the one who brings in the kingdom of God. The parable is showing them what they ought to do, which is reconcile with God now. Today. Friends, it's very clear in the Bible that every person is accountable to God. Every one of us stands in debt to God, you could say, and the source of that debt is sin. Every sin is against God. It's true that our sin often hurts other people, but the reason why that's wrong is because those other people are made in the image of God. All sin is ultimately against God. Even when we sinned against others, we've actually sinned against God in the worst way. And that means that all of us stand in debt before God. We are accountable to Him. And what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that there's only one way for our accounts to be made right. There's only one pathway to reconciliation. And that's through the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. You see, Jesus' entire life, from His miraculous conception, to His mighty ministry, to His authoritative teaching, to His atoning death, to His life-giving resurrection, Jesus' entire life is making this one point. No one can come to God except through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to have the books of your life settle up before God. And that's through the Lord Jesus. That's what the crowd won't see in Luke chapter 12. They won't see it. But more than the crowd, what about you? Will you see it? Will I see it? Do do you recognize the significance of what Scripture reveals in Jesus Christ? Have you slowed down long enough to take seriously what the Scriptures say and what the Gospel demands of your life? Listen, some some people miss the truth of the Gospel because they're mired so deep in darkness that they can't see anything else. That's tragic. But many more people miss the truth of the Gospel because they're too distracted and too busy and too preoccupied to see the truth that God has plainly revealed there in front of their eyes. Look, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard someone say, yeah, I would would follow God if I could only see where He's working. I'd follow Him if I knew for sure which way I ought to go. I'd follow Him if I could just see what He wants me to do. Friends, God's not hiding from you. He's not hiding from anyone. His Word and His will are 
revealed very clearly in the Scripture. He's revealed Himself and His kingdom very plainly for all to see. It's right there in the Bible, in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God sent to the earth for the salvation of sinners. He's the one who took the judgment of God on Himself so that sinners would be saved from that very same judgment. That's the truth. That's the way God wants you to walk. And it's not hidden. It's revealed very plainly in the Bible. The real question is not, how do I find where God is working or how can I see what God is doing? No, the real question is, will I submit to what He's already shown me? Will I discern with humility that God is working in and through Jesus Christ? Will you see it? Will we see it? The nearness of the kingdom, which is unmistakably near in Jesus, the nearness of that kingdom demands discernment from those who witness it. And that, friends, brings us very clearly to the final truth in the passage where Jesus mounts to this essential climactic appeal. This is the final truth that urges upon us a response from chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. The reality of judgment urges us to repent. The reality of judgment urges us to repent. Jesus has just rebuked the crowd for their lack of discernment. They can interpret the weather, but they can't interpret what God's doing, or they won't. And here at the start of chapter 13, we get an illustration that proves Jesus' rebuke was right. Instead of responding to Jesus, the crowd wants to argue with Him about a theological point. Look at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. The specific event here is not recorded anywhere else, but it appears that Pilate killed or had killed some Galilean worshipers and then he mixed their blood with their offerings just to spite them. That's heinous on Pilate's part, but understand the crowd is not really asking about Pilate. The crowd is asking about God. The crowd wants to argue with Jesus about God. According to some Jewish rabbis, personal tragedy was a sign of God's judgment on you for unrepentant sin. Think of that scene in John chapter 9 when Jesus meets the man born blind and the disciples say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Remember that? That's the same attitude that the crowd has right here. They just want to argue with Jesus about how to interpret things in light of God's inscrutable will. They want Jesus to explain God's actions. In other words, the crowd is missing the point. They're missing the point. Jesus has been urging them to respond and they say, yeah, what about Pilate? What about the Galileans? What about that, Jesus? They're missing the point. And so Jesus does what He so often does in these moments. He cuts straight to the heart of the matter. Notice His response, verses 2 and 3. Puts the emphasis where it should be. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus has no time to mess with fools. You notice how quickly He dismisses their faulty assumption? Personal tragedy is not proof that someone has sinned. You're missing the point, Jesus says. The Galileans whom Pilate killed are not any worse sinners than you. Don't miss the point, Jesus is saying. 
recognize that your end could come soon as well. And therefore, you ought to repent. Jesus tells the crowd that the real tragedy is not a wicked Roman doing wicked things. The real tragedy is living as though you will not have to answer to God too. That's the real tragedy. Everyone will face death, Jesus reminds them. And therefore, everyone ought to recognize how urgent it is to repent. Indeed, this urgency is so great that Jesus repeats the exact same point in verses 4 and 5 with just a different illustration. But the point is exactly the same. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Still, Jesus is not finished. To emphasize the urgency as if we haven't gotten it yet, Jesus tells a parable in verses 6 to 9. It's a parable about the urgency of today. Notice how the parable works. Verse 6, Jesus describes a barren fig tree, which in this context represents the nation of Israel. The Israel of Jesus' day is like a barren tree. If you remember Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah used a very similar parable to describe the Israel of his day. They're barren. They're not bearing fruit. So when Jesus tells this parable about a barren fig tree, the crowd knows precisely what he's talking about. He's talking about them. The people lack the fruit of repentance. So in the parable, the man who planted the tree wants to cut it down. What's the point of a fruitless tree? It's just taking up dirt. Get rid of it. But in verse 8, the vine dresser suggests a bit more patience. Look at verses 8 and 9. The vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell you what happened in the parable. Do you notice that? It just ends uncertain. Why is that? Because the point is not what the tree is going to do. The point is what you're going to do. What I'm going to do. Friends, in the context, this parable is a warning to Israel. Jesus reminds the crowd that today is the time for repentance. There's a day coming when God's judgment will be revealed. So before that day gets here, the people ought to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, just as John the Baptist told them to do. If the people persist in rejecting the Messiah, then the only thing left will be the outpouring of the judgment of God. So in in the context here of Luke 13, the parable is Jesus warning the nation of Israel to wake up. But friends, that does not mean that the parable has no application for us. In a way, this parable is a summation of all that Jesus has been teaching throughout the entire passage. He's summing everything up for you. He's reminding us... He's reminding us in this parable of two incredible realities. The first incredible reality is that God is unthinkably patient. God is unthinkably patient. Did you catch that in the parable? The vine dresser gives the barren tree one more year to bear fruit. That's a picture of God's heart towards sinners. He is unthinkably patient. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. 
God makes the rain fall on the just and on the unjust. Every day that the sun comes up, we experience the patient mercy of God. God is unthinkably patient. And that patience, friends, that mercy is meant to lead us to repentance, Romans chapter 2. Don't you know that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance? It's an incredible reality in the parable. God is unthinkably patient. The second incredible reality, though, reminds us that God's patient mercy does not exclude His judgment. His patient mercy doesn't exclude His judgment. The vine dresser, who I take as representing God, the vine dresser gives the tree another year, but only another year. After that comes judgment. And so it is with humanity. God's patience should not be mistaken for absent-mindedness. God's mercy should not lead us to conclude that we can put off till tomorrow what the Gospel demands of us today. Today, when you hear God's voice in His Word, do not harden your heart as Israel did in the wilderness. Do not harden your heart as Israel does in Luke chapter 12. Do not harden your heart, Jesus says. Today is the day to turn from sin and to flee to Christ. And that's where we conclude. That's the response. If you don't know Christ today, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus' death to save you, then recognize, friend, the urgency of today. God's Word is clear and plain before your eyes. Don't take our church's Word for it. Don't take my Word for it. Take God's Word for it. It's very clear and it's very plain. And His Word demands of you, if you're not a Christian, His Word demands that you humble yourself before Him in repentance and faith. Repentance simply means to turn from your sin and to acknowledge that you have willingly rebelled against God and against His Word. And that repentance is followed by faith where the Holy Spirit causes your heart to trust in Christ. My hope is built on nothing less, as the hymn says. To believe that Jesus' death was in your place and that His resurrection is the assurance of your life with God. If you're not a Christian today, if you've just come to church off the street or if you come to church with your mom and dad, if you're not a Christian today, don't put off till tomorrow what God's Word demands of you today. Turn from sin and trust that Christ alone is able to save you. For those who are trusting in Christ, the urgency remains. Repentance is not something we do solely on the day of our conversion. The fight against sin continues throughout the Christian life. That's why we read from Galatians chapter 5 today. Because we need God's grace to kill the flesh and to walk according to the Spirit. The fight against sin continues throughout the Christian life. And therefore, we always stand in need of God's grace To repent. In our church's statement of faith, it defines repentance as an evangelical grace. And that's true. It's the grace of God. To see your sin for what it is and to turn from it. And so even for those who are Christians, that urgency remains the same. There's always an urgency to respond to the call of God in His Word. Part of being a Christian 
at least a growing Christian, means being quick to confess and quick to repent. In fact, I take it as one of the healthiest marks of a growing relationship with Christ, of a growing and deepening sense of godliness, is that we refuse to put off till tomorrow what the Gospel promises to free us from today. So let's renew our commitment, brothers and sisters, to live that way. Let's renew our commitment to walk in the light, just as God is in the light. And let's remember that as we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't put off till tomorrow what the gospel demands of you today. May God give all of us ears to hear and hearts to respond. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. We need Your help far more than we like to admit, God. We can tell ourselves that because we have worked hard to understand this passage and because we've paid attention to how the verses connect to one another, that we've done all the business with You today that we need to do. And that's not true, God. We pray for humble hearts now that would respond to Your Word in repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that if there are those among us who do not know Christ, that You would do what only You can do and grant them the miracle of the new birth so that they might repent and believe. Father, we pray for our church as a whole that we would be people who are growing in godliness, quick to see, quick to repent, quick to confess and trust that the Gospel is enough. Lord, we pray that You would help us to grow. We pray that Your Spirit would bear fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen.